Don't talk to me unless it's about this. Today, Darla and I are talking about The Immortalist by Chloe Benjamin. This is one of my all-time favorite books, so I'm really excited we're reading it together. Also one of my all-time favorite authors. And we've read to the first half, we've read the parts that cover the intro and Clara and Simon. And even though I know the whole story, I promise I won't give spoilers beyond this first half uh, for your sake, Darla, and everybody else. But of course, we will give spoilers for this first half. So just a little recap on what's happened so far. The book starts in New York City in 1969 with the four gold siblings. They're all very young at the time, and they go to this fortune teller who tells them all the day they're going to die. And then we follow Simon's life and Clara's life, and we find that they do both die on the days this woman predicted, but in very different circumstances. And the first thing I wanted to ask you, Darla, is did you see that coming for either or both of them? Well, we've talked about this before with books in which I'm like, I'm so in the moment (laughs) with the books (laughs) that I don't really predict things before I start. So I really did just jump in and start and, and have no idea where it was going. I have to admit, I was also fairly confused through the fortune teller part of the book. Like, I just couldn't understand what was really going on. I couldn't understand who those four kids were. I couldn't understand what was happening. And the scene was confusing to me. And I was like, see, even really good published books still are confusing. You know, it's hard. It is really hard to set a scene and set characters and set the atmosphere quickly enough in a book for your reader to not be confused at any point. And for them to be interested. Yes. I, I mean, I'm, a, I'm pretty much a read, a read a book through if I've started it kind of person. So there isn't a huge chance that I would have put it down. But I would have been more likely to had it not been for the fact that you love this book so much. I don't remember having that experience the first time I read it, but it's been so long. And also it makes me wonder almost, was that part of it? Like, was it supposed to be kind of confusing? What is reality? What is illusion? What is real? What's not? And I'm almost wondering if that was part of it. Now I want to reread that first little section. Yeah, it's interesting because you did ask ask that question about what's what's illusion and and what was real. And some books you you get into them and you're like, oh, it's, this is like real people. I mean, we've talked about Sally Rooney, right? That's like just people, right? They feel really mm-hmm. real. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of illusion involved or fantasy. But with this one, it felt like is this like a fantasy novel? Like I'm also reading Midnight's Children by Sam and Rushdie right now because that's my husband's favorite book. And that is like, I don't know if you've read Sam and Rushdie, but he's, he is a difficult read. And it's very, so much of it is very wove, like illusion and fantasy and myth woven in, uh, fables and storytelling woven into the stories. And I've kind of felt like that in the beginning of The Immortalists. Or maybe it's just me. Maybe other people are like, that was the most straightforward scene ever. (laughs) Just didn't get it. (laughs) Which I have no shame about. That's fine. Yeah. There's all, yeah, we all have different books that kind of click for us or make sense to us, different types of writing. And so what's interesting about how how they both die in the end is it happens super quickly. All of a sudden, there's basically three pages left in their sections and they die. And so you can't really necessarily see it coming unless you're unless that was your prediction but otherwise it's happens very quickly so did you see or think that that was coming for either of them 
when you were getting towards the end of their sections? Yeah, that's a good question because I saw it for Clara, but not for Simon. And I think that makes sense, right? Because Simon was the first one to go. And then you're like, oh, I see what's going to happen here. And there's four parts. You know, like I get what's going to happen in this book. Or I think I do, right? I I will give a prediction for the second half of the book. The other two siblings are going to die on their dates. With Simon, I didn't see it coming. And it just was, I, I was talking to someone about that part of the book. And it was such a incredible insight into a time period, which I did not live through. Right. And also I would, I'm not that demographic. So, so gay men in when the AIDS epidemic started in San Francisco, right. Such a, such a specific piece of history and I know about the AIDS epidemic, right? And I know about it from a bigger perspective and I've read things about the AIDS epidemic, but I never really, I don't think I've ever had anything laid out quite that, I guess, narratively, you know, about the beginnings of it. You know, she Mm -hmm. she really, Chloe Benjamin does a great job of like seeding that, the feelings of that time, you know, that like for, for me, I felt like I was starting to live in fear, you know, as I was reading the book. Like feeling like what what those what Simon and his friends must have been feeling at the time in that community, I have never I like had that kind of insight into it, and the way that she like I feel like it just like it was so like I, I wish you could see my hands right now right it's like it's like trickling it was like this slow trickle mm-hmm. of information mm-hmm. of like it wasn't like bam fear starting it was like this little just like inputting it slowly and seeding it in until it was like oh my god I see what's gonna happen and you're right it was like three pages before you know like you could tell you were like oh I see what's happening now and whereas with Clara I think I started her chapter and was like all right what when are we going to start to understand how she's gonna die Mm -hmm. and then she continues following the themes in the next chapter like then in Clara's chapter it mentions oh the president still hadn't acknowledged the AIDS epidemic and so you keep finding out things kind of about Simon's life even after and have some flashbacks to that and so I like that it's not only Simon in Simon's chapter we also get bits of Clara's life bits of Danielle Varia and then again in Clara's we see a little bit of what the other siblings are doing Mm -hmm. she showed what was happening at that time So the book jacket openly talks about the fact that this story probes the line between destiny and choice. And I think that especially comes up in Clara's situation because she did die by suicide. And so there is, it's hard to say like, you know, kind of what was happening. Was there an element of choice in that for her or not? But I wanted to read this quote in Clara's chapter and then ask you what you think about how much was destiny, how much was choice at play in their deaths. Obviously, it was all choice because they're fake and this is a made-up story, but as if they were real, you can answer that question. (laughs) Okay, so this is on page 144 and Clara is thinking about the woman who told their fortunes. 13 years later, the woman was right about Simon, just as Clara had feared. But this is the problem. Was the woman as powerful as she seemed, or did Clara take steps that made the prophecy come true? Which would be worse? If Simon's death was preventable, a fraud, then Clara is at fault, and perhaps she's a fraud too. After all, if magic exists alongside reality, two faces gazing in different directions, like the head of 
Giannis, then Clara can't be the only one able to access it. If she doubts the woman, the woman, then she has to doubt herself. And if she doubts herself, she must doubt everything she believes, including Simon's knocks. So what do you think was the balance between destiny and choice with both Simon's death and Clara's death? Gosh, that is such that's such a deeper question, isn't it, than just this book? Because it makes you look at your own life of like what what in my life has been choice and what is destiny, and maybe not. Maybe you wouldn't even use those words. You know, some of those words are like loaded for certain people. So you might say you might use fate, or you might you might just say choice and not choice. So think about what Claire is saying about Simon is. Did Claire play a hand in that by moving him out to San Francisco, by introducing him to this for, to this life, to this community at a time when HIV was was starting? And even if if Simon had decided to stay in New York and take care take over his father's business, would he have, you know, found this the arts that he found? It's like that snowball effect effect is basically what she's saying. But if we start thinking that way, we have to go all the way back to birth. I don't know that there's a way that we can do that halfway, that we can say, this is what I started making choice, and this is when I can start to question those choices, but anything before that was fate, right? Mm. And so so it's it's dangerous. I was actually just talking to my therapist about this yesterday, that it's really, it's <laughs> dangerous territory to question our choices. She didn't say that. That's me saying it now. Um, editorializing it now, but it's dangerous territory to start to question our choices because where does that stop? There is no beginner or end to that. So I would say that really it's all, we've got to think of it either as all choice or choice. Maybe the, maybe the, my answer to that is it doesn't matter that some of it is destiny, some of it is choice, but it doesn't matter. What do you think? Do you, what's your take on it? Hearing you say it, it doesn't matter. It changes the way I'm looking at it because you're right. It doesn't. E- either way, what happens, happens. And like you said, you either question all of it or you question none of it. You can't piecemeal pick. And I, I think I kind of do look at it a little bit piecemeal. Like, okay, moving to San Francisco wasn't the cause of Simon's death, but when Simon got kind of reckless and was just like having sex with tons of men, cheating on Robert, that was, you know, was that choice part of it? And Clara becoming a magician, that wasn't it. But getting so fixated on this date and choosing, making this whole plan to kill herself, that was part of it. But so if I have to choose, it's everything or nothing, then I think I'm more likely to say it's more destiny. And this was just the way it was going to play out. Yeah, I mean, I I feel that way with Simon. You know, with Clara, I think she she obviously made a choice at that moment. And I don't even say that as everyone who commits suicide makes a choice. I'm saying that Clara in that moment, she she was looking at that date and saying, I can make this become a reality or I cannot. And mm-hmm. she made it become a reality. And so there was a seedling of destiny because the clairvoyant said that she would die on that date. But I mean, any, but you could walk up to someone on the street and be like, when am I going to die? And they could tell you, and then you could kill yourself on that date. And you could be like, oh, look at that, you know? So 
to me, that was like, it was a totally different form of destiny than Simon's for sure. We're talking about suicide as a very delicate subject. And I think Clara's situation is, again, it's fictional and also it's different from, we're not putting any kind of blame or choice on people who die by suicide. We know that's mental illness is not a choice. But yeah, I think we're looking at Clara's character a little bit differently because of the rest of the story. It almost see, seems like with Clara that it's like it's you asked about illusion versus reality. And it almost seems like with Clara, it's like drama or but something above illusion. It's the show, you know, illusion. And she she alludes to that. She talks about it's more than just the like sleight of hand tricks. It's, it, you know, she liked the what was the one called where she held the thing in her teeth? The Immortalist. Oh, is that the, what they ended up calling it? The Immortalist? Yeah. I thought mm-hmm. that was her, the Immortalist. But that was the oh, trick. Oh, the Jaws of Death? Jaws of, the Jaws yeah. of Death was that specific trick. Yeah, you're right. The whole show was the Immortalist. Yeah. So, you know, she liked doing that trick because it was more than just the trick. You know, it was, even though she was kind of annoyed at the men who would come in just to see her in the dress, she wanted to wear that dress. She wanted to, like, have the whole, she wanted to have the, have the, audience be kind of on on the edge of their seats it was more than just the illusion and so that's what it seems like to me her death was it was like look at i can i can create this show especially the way that she did it went up stuck into the penthouse on this day on the first of the year and her which it was just starting to take off and it was like look it can be such drama and it ends with saying raj is right she's a star and it's Exactly like you're describing. It's about this spectacle. Yeah. That gave me goosebumps. Like even hearing you say that again, it's real, it's, it's sad. We do revere, we so often revere stars and authors and, you know, artists after they die. And we just Mm -hmm. don't have appreciate as much appreciation for, we, I mean, people while they're alive definitely get tons of appreciation. Taylor Swift, Kim Kardashian, you know, some of our favorites, but (laughs) <laughs> but like it, we do revere. There's something like, there's something really mysterious and and almost sexy about like being revered after death. And I think Clara definitely fed into that. And being kind of misunderstood, I think, is also part of it. And well, it's interesting, you know, how this the chapter ends with talking about she's a star. And then I also wanted to read something from her section opening all about this idea of what's real and what's illusion in Clara's life. It says, most adults claim not to believe in magic, but Clara knows better. Why else would anyone play at permanence, fall in love, have children, buy a house? In the face of all evidence, there's no such thing. The trick is not to convert them. The trick is to get them to admit it. And I was just kind of blown away by this mirror being held up to me of, what in what in my life do I decide is quote magic and what's not and how so many things are like getting married and having kids and having a house but that's not deemed magic I don't deem that magic but if you really look at it you could call a lot of things magic choosing to have friendships is magic you're it's all very ephemeral and uh indescribable and I actually I want to believe in more magic in the world (laughs) I try to think there would be something very 
lightning and beautiful and easeful about believing in more magic and less, you know, facts only. And so I liked the way Clara's section again and again went back to what is illusion, what's magic, and you may think you don't believe in it, but look, you actually probably do because you do all these other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that line, not to be overly dramatic, but it was like life changing to read that was like really snapped, like something snapped in me when I when I read that it was like, if we really do, we believe in magic as adults on such a regular basis. Every day is magic. The fact that we could cohabitate with someone that we think will be married to someone for the rest of their lives. I'm talking about not we as like collective conscious, but you and me being married to people who think we're going to be married to our husbands for the rest of our lives on most days. Um, that's magic. It's absolute magic. Mm-hmm. The fact that we have these tiny human beings who we're supposed to keep alive and not hate every day, some days, but not every day, is magic. The fact yeah, that we like it's... send our kids to school and there are people who will educate them to then make them like contributing members of society or adults or whatever you want to want to say they're gonna, going to be on the other side is magic. And yeah. let's not even get into technology, which is definitely magic to me. <laughs> technology or making art, writing, getting to read stories. I remember hearing someone say once, the second you don't take something for granted, it becomes a miracle. They said it nicer than that, but that was the gist of it. And I feel like that was a a snap, life-changing moment for me of, oh my God, the second I don't take something for granted, the tree outside my window, the pavement of the sidewalk, it becomes a miracle. And I think that's really what this quote's getting at too. Yeah. You know, I I talk about my husband's work sometimes because, you know, obviously it's a lot of in my life not only because it's what he does but it's he he works more than I do it's why we're living in Amman right now he travels 50% of the time and he does he's a humanitarian photographer so he does like really heartfelt work and meaningful work and I think you know what's interesting is he has really helped me see life in that way differently which as you wouldn't meet Ezra and be like oh he is someone who lives in gratitude you know but really turning on the tap is magic, especially when where Ezra travels to, he he was just in the Horn of Africa a couple of months ago do, doing work on the drought. And people are walking like, you know, hours just to get water. There are people who are paid to take your animals around to, to get to the water and not paid well, but like this is a this is a job. And there are other people, there are people out there doing ceremonies at trees to pray to the gods to bring the rain. Like that tap is magic. But the days where you take it for granted, when your filter's not working, when somehow the plumbing, you know, you have a plumbing leak or something, we just, we can get so privileged and first worldy about our problems without realizing that that's just, that's just damn magic. It's a real testament to someone like Chloe Benjamin and, and to, to, to be able to do that, to be able to, to plant that in us. I think that's what you hope for. You know, as a writer, that's what I hope for, that someone just reads one thing and, and that takeaway and they, they have some, some deep, meaningful takeaway from something I, I read. It doesn't have to be something I write. It doesn't have to be the whole book. But man, if they just have something that sticks with them, 
It does. And I know that later we're going to talk about favorite sentences, which is a thing that Chloe likes to collect. And she has on her website all these favorite sentences from different books or places she's read. And that, I would say, is definitely one of mine. But before we get to more favorite sentences, I wanted to ask you about Simon and Clara and what do you think were the most powerful emotions that drove them in their lives? The times that they were living as well as the times that they, you know, knew they were dying or getting close to it. I don't know. I have a harder time placing what those emotions would be as much as what's just actually happening, like logistically, pragmatically happening in the book. Do you have ones that stick out for you? I mean, I know I just turned it around and asked you, but. That's fine. (laughs) I think for both of them, shame was definitely a big emotion. I think for Simon, he had a lot of shame around being gay. And he, I really appreciated the relationship he had with Robert, where Robert tried to hold this mirror up to him and tell him, like, you don't have to make this raunchy or dirty or exciting in this certain way that comes from being ashamed of something. We can just have a loving relationship. And I think. I loved Robert. He was definitely my favorite character. I think he really tried to help Simon heal that shame. And I think Simon also was driven by this sense of haste and urgency because he thought he was going to die at this very young age. And so he felt like, I've got to just go live this life. And I think especially when he got kind of scared of seeing, they didn't yet know it was AIDS, but that was starting and he was feeling the sense of, you know, my date is coming. And I think he was kind of a little scared of the commitment with Robert too. Then he was driven by this shame and haste. And that's when he was off having sex with lots of people. And for Clara, I think she also had a lot of regret and grief over losing Simon. I think losing Simon and losing her dad also, even though she lost him first, I think the grief for him came after Simon died because she started seeing more of the connections between them two. And that's when we learned about how her dad was actually very supportive of her magic. And so I think she was driven by that grief and regret, feeling like, what hand did she have to play in these things? It's interesting. I didn't really think, I mean, I saw the shame. Obviously, Robert pointed that out about Simon. I probably wouldn't have necessarily picked up on that as much. and. I didn't really see it as much in Clara. I saw her as more unashamed in a way, you know, just like unabashed in her decisions. I think sometimes we want to, we see what we want to see in a, in a character. And I think I really wanted to have somebody who was like, just so sure of her decisions at that, you know, like that I wanted to see that in her, but now I can see what you're talking about, especially in connection with her father, which you know, it's another thing that, like, not to always bring in coaching, but, like, it's something that we're so often motivated by shame, which is such a dirty fuel to lead our lives. And it doesn't always end as dramatically and drastically as it does for Simon and, and Clara, but it's it really, it's it's the exact opposite of what we were talking about of seeing the magic in life and the not taking things for granted is the you can paint anything with a shame paintbrush, but 
you are, and I'm going to use this word loosely, is like making the choice to do that. And granted, we're not talking about mental health and life circumstances and co- right. your own context. But like, you know, there's moments where I, I can take a moment and in my life and you can either paint that with like the paintbrush of gratitude or you can paint that with a paintbrush of shame. And that changes. It changes that moment, that experience so drastically. It's true. It's actually, I really like that you brought up the dichotomy that's in the book that we're talking about. Clara's pointing out all these things that are magical. And at the same time, there's all these, the shame and grief that's happening in the book and that both are there together in life. And it's, like you said, it's kind of how you choose to see it. And I think at the end, you know, on his deathbed, Simon saw things as magic. He said he doesn't regret anything. He's so glad he lived the life he got to live. And I think it's almost like he was living in shame and then saw the magic at the end. And Clara was kind of the opposite. She was living in magic and then was just in the shame and the grief at the end. And I don't think she died feeling like oh, it's okay, everything was fine, life was good. I think she's excited for death because she wants to be back with Simon and Saul. I mean, Simon, I think, was always reaching for the magic. You know, like, I think it was in Clara to start with, but Simon was like, like, moving to San Francisco, knowing he had dance and art inside of him, knowing he had something different. You know, he says at one point, like, wait, I might be able to find this really easily, this quote. Manhattan should be an oasis. There are gay clubs, even bathhouses, but he's afraid to reinvent himself in a place that has always been home. So he he knew like he had to go somewhere where that magic was. And he he fell in love, which was the magic. He talks about the first time he got into that the the plat on the platform to dance, you know, and like how difficult that was. And yet he worked through that and then he joined a dance company and then he became a dancer. Like he actually was kept on reaching for the magic, kept on on um stri- a stri- I wouldn't want to say striving for it, but like kept on believing in it. So it almost feels like Clara was going the other direction, especially until she met Raj, right? Where she was like a little too like buttoned up about her performances and she wasn't letting herself feel it. She wasn't letting herself go. And she wasn't open to letting in others feed other people's feedback or trying different things. She was like you said, she was very confident and brazen about this is who I am and I'm sure of myself, but that also kind of kept things closed off for her. I don't know, like going back to choice, I don't know that she had a choice about that because she was, she had to believe in herself so much that she almost had to cut off everything else. I mean, think of how much she had mm-hmm. to like, if you thought about putting yourself in her position where you're like, I'm going to take my little brother who's in high school across the country and away from my family after my dad has died. Can you imagine how much you'd have to, you'd have to believe in yourself, right? You'd have, you'd have to put those walls up. Those would have to be such strict boundaries to keep on going with that, to not have, to not fold in the face of uh, Eddie Donahue, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Not uh, Eddie O'Donoghue. O'Donoghue. Not f- f- fold in the face of him or in, in the, f- in you know, phone calls from your mom or whatever it was, right? Like, you just had to, you had to just put this box up. She needed blinders on. Definitely. Well, and there's even a quote at one point when her and Raj are arguing and he was kind of like, 
who would you be if I didn't find you and help you grow this? And she thought I would, I yeah, I'd be alone probably in San Francisco, but I'd be in control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I think that control was really important to both of them, right? Clara, Clara was our, was already somebody who was like, she had that inner confidence. She had that control already inside of her. And she needed to keep on going. She needed to keep on pushing it. Even if she questions her decisions, I can actually like, you know, see that in myself too. It's like, I'm constant. I tell people that my comfort zone is outside my comfort zone. That's how it is. Like, okay, just got to push to the next thing that feels uncomfortable. And it seems from the outside that, that it's this, you know, plethora of self-confidence that makes me do those things. But it's actually just because like, that's what I need to be doing. Just like someone else needs to be staying close to home, having a corporate job and, you know, like there's there, we have different things that are comfort zones and Clara's comfort zone. I can see that was like outside of her comfort zone. So she needed to hold on to that. She needed to feel really confident in what she was doing. There was no, there was no other option for her. Hello everyone. It's Caitlin. I wanted to first say a sincere thank you for listening and also invite you to join our Patreon community. It's a place to continue these conversations off air to submit your own thoughts and ideas to be on the show, for you to join a community that will help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whatever those may be, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter where we share little snippets of what's going on on Patreon or go right ahead and join the community right now. All the links are in the show notes. Well, I want to talk about Eddie O'Donohue because he was a character that really stuck out to me the first time I read the book and even more so the second time I read it. And I think he really was put in the book to mean something to her. And before I share what I took from his character, did he stand out to you or what did you think about his place in her story? No, he didn't stand out to me. And it's so interesting. I was just like, like that kind of thought he was a throwaway character. So I'm so I'm so intrigued to know what you took away from him. Yeah, so it came for me definitely a lot more on the second read. And I think what his character was trying to show her was things aren't so black and white. And I think Clara lived in a lot of black and white. The way she saw him, he was this bad guy who was mean to Simon and ultimately didn't actually do anything to Simon and was just doing his job, was maybe a little aggressive. but. She saw him as bad and then didn't like the way he was coming back in this kinder, empathetic way because, no, he was supposed to be this bad person. And how could I betray Simon by letting this person into my life? And he also was really affirming for her her beliefs about magic and the way it can change people. And he has this whole confession to her about how it her show changed him and it opened up his eyes and it's making him see things in this whole new way. And that's exactly why she does this and he's seemingly the only person who's giving her this feedback like the thing you're trying to do you did it and I think her with his character if she had kind of pursued that as either a romantic relationship or a friendship I think it could have allowed her to forgive herself for because she'd have to forgive him first and then she'd I would think move towards forgiving herself and I think he was this kind of opening that she could have taken towards healing that her character just keeps 
shutting down, pushing away. And even at, at the end, she's she thinks that she sees him. I feel like that was this moment of her brain being like, maybe don't do it. Maybe stay alive. You thought you saw this Eddie O'Donoghue, which is kind of this uh, beacon of possibility. And and then, of course, you know, she doesn't ever take taking these opportunities with him. Yeah, I, it's like so interesting, you know, how you can read the same book and be like, wow, that's what you got. Because <laughs> if anything, as you were talking about it, you probably started to make me realize, because I think sometimes you need to hear somebody else's opinion to be like, oh, I have a strong opinion. Mm-hmm. And it happens like not just in books, but in everyday life. You're like, I didn't know I had an opinion about baby carrots, but suddenly that you're eating them, I need to tell you. <laughs> What those are. <laughs> so um, I realize in in you talking about him that I actually would have seen it as the opposite if she had ended up with 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 him because I think he is even though he believes in the magic I think he would have been a damper on who she was. Which is interesting because she ends her life so early. So maybe maybe if she would have stayed alive longer with him in her life. But I almost feel like it would have been a mediocre version of herself that like my my best friend and I used to have this phrase that we were, would say, um, we're no longer having relationships on credit, you know, like we're not dating people with potential anymore we got to a point where we're like we didn't need the person who who sees my spark and is like oh i you can help me find my spark which is kind of what i felt like which never worked by the way um my husband doesn't see my spark no just kidding (laughs) just (laughs) spark isn't his thing so we're okay but in the past, I can like, I get, I mean, talking to you right now, there is a like Rolodex of people who I can be like, yeah, they were like, oh, bring, let me see this. Let me get near the spark and it will help me find mine. And so here I see this person who, who probably didn't have a lot of spark in his life by the, maybe the life that he chose, the, the way that he treated Simon, right? Like the, the way that we were introduced to his character, he kind of had that, he didn't have a life of magic and he saw Clara's show. And I'm sorry, that one moment can't change you. There's a lot more that you have to do, a lot more growth work you have to do on your own. It's not her job to fix you. And I think that's what comes up for me is like, if she had her rejecting Eddie is even more rejecting the f- rejecting reality, right? The, like uh, it's allowing her to live in the magic. She could have told she maybe she could have married Eddie and and broken up with Raj, and maybe she could have like stayed in one place and had some show, or I don't know, maybe she had a couple more kids and stayed at home. And next thing you know, it's ten years later, and she hasn't done a magic show, and but she's still alive. Well, the first time I read the book, I really did not like Eddie. I thought he was a very bad guy. And I would have said exactly what you just said. And so I don't know exactly what changed that I read it very differently this time. Interesting. I'll have to see if I, if I ever read this book again, how my feelings of Eddie change or any of the characters. Well, really. you did, just, you, did anyone else change for you in all of the, in your second reading? No, I don't think so. I think otherwise I felt the same way. I loved Robert a lot both times. 
I cried a lot more the first time with Simon because I wasn't prepared for what was coming. But otherwise, I think I had pretty similar thoughts on the characters. What you were just saying about how you were describing Eddie made me think of a song lyric. And this ties in because I thought of actually songs for both Simon and Clara, but now I've got a song to add, a song lyric to add in. This song is a high beam. It's by Chelsea Jade, who's been on the podcast. Everyone should go listen. She's an incredible singer and artist. And she has a song and the line is, I'm a high beam, honey, showing the way it's going to be. But you're a lightweight, honey. Never enough for all of me. Eddie's the lightweight. That's that, great job. <laughs> That's what I was trying to say. Good lyric. Yes. Chelsea J. She, I mean, she's got great play on words in her in her songs. So maybe I'll share with you my song yes. for each Simon and Clara. Please do. So this came to me. I was I had just finished Simon's chapter and I was on a hike. And whenever I'm on a hike, I just kind of will get one song stuck in my head and I just replay it over and over. And I was like, oh my God, this song is Simon. And it's called Truth or Dare. It's by a singer named Nora Rothman. Truth or dare, are you gonna miss me when you fly back there? Truth or dare, what's behind your stare? Here are some of the lines that I thought reminded me of Simon's life. Truth or dare, are you gonna miss me when you fly back there? Truth or dare, what's behind your stare? Making me feel like I've never been felt. Truth or dare, if I find another man, will you care? Truth or dare, is the way that I kiss you unfair? Truth or dare, are you honest or are you scared? And then the song ends with dare. And then very quietly it says, don't go anywhere. Dare. Don't go anywhere. And I feel like Simon's life was this whole game of truth or dare, especially his relationship with Robert. And I think Robert was always ready for truth. And Simon was more daring and was tiptoeing around a little bit more like scared to just fall in love and just be in this loving relationship with Robert and was playing more with fate and taking more daring choices. And the way they go back and forth make me feel like I've never been felt. I think, you know, his whole life in San Francisco did that for him and Robert especially and this question of, are you honest or are you scared? It's a very beautiful song. I'm excited for everyone to hear it and to think about Simon as they listen to it. Yeah, I can see that. Those, those lyrics check out. Are you honest or are you scared?
What did you have for Clara? So Clara is a Taylor Swift song, no. obviously, which unfortunately we will not be able to play. I don't have her her people's contact and I don't want to get shut down. But the song is called Mirrorball. And I don't know if Mirrorball is just like is like a British term for a disco ball or a word she made up. The idea is picture a disco ball. And here are some of the lyrics. I'm a mirror ball. I'll show you every version of yourself tonight. And when I break, it's in a million pieces. When no one is around, my dear, you'll find me on my tallest tiptoes, spinning in my highest heels, love, shining just for you. Hush, I know they say the end is near, but I'm still on my tallest tiptoes, spinning in my highest heels, shining just for you. And then this part, I think, is Eddie in my, you will not think it's Eddie, but I think it's Eddie. It says, you are not like the regulars, the masquerade revelers, drunk as they watch my shattered edges glisten. I think that's how other people watch her mm-hmm. show, but mm-hmm. he saw her different. And then I'm still a believer, but I don't know why. I've never been a natural. All I do is try, try, try. What if Raj is that person, though? What if Raj is the one that doesn't see her like everybody else? I mean, he could be, but like my whole theory is it's Eddie, you know? <laughs> like, Stop ruining my theory here. That's so boring. What, her partner thinks the world of her? Oh, God. <laughs> I do I do think Raj, I kind of, you know, I hated him for a little bit in the middle, but I think at the end he was trying to be that person for her. At the very end, there's somebody who calls to her. I guess I can't ask you this question because you know the rest of the book. So never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's your question? Just to to pose it and I will answer it. Uh, For anyone else who hasn't read the other half of this book. um, Who is that? I couldn't figure out. I read that last page so many times or those last two pages being like, well, it's not Raj because of I can't remember the exact way that the person referred to her. Miss Miss Gold. Right. So it was like. It wasn't Raj. Oh, mm-hmm. And I was like, was it the cleaning lady? But how would the cleaning, like the person who left the door, it's not like that person recognized her coming off the elevator. So it wouldn't have been that person. So was it like the daycare attendant who needed something from her and saw her get to the elevator and happened to pass the cleaning lady who said, oh, she went to the pet house? Or was it someone from her show? Or is it someone who just showed up who she, like, Eddie? Or not Eddie, because I don't think he would have. Maybe he would have referred to her that way. But like Eddie or I don't know, someone from her past. I can't figure out who that was. I'm not going to tell you if we find out or we don't find out. We'll see. We'll see. This is shrugging emoji time. I'm keeping a neutral face. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about favorite sentences. Do you have any favorite sentences to share? I know we already talked about the one about magic. Do you have any others to share? Uh, where do? How much of the book do you want me to read? <laughs> <laughs> it's the whole thing. Let's pick uh, top three. Okay, I'm gonna need a minute with that. I can share mine okay, first. You share then. yours. My top three. Here's one. This is on page 134, and it's when Claire is thinking back about her father. And she thinks about his life and says, now Clara has more sympathy for him. Saul came from immigrants and Clara suspects he lived in fear of losing the life he'd been giving. This is the part I really love. She understands, too, the loneliness of parenting, which is the loneliness of memory. To know that she connects a future 
unknowable to her parents with a past unknowable to her child. Mm-hmm. Damn. That's real. Chloe, I know. It's crazy. Another one, also about the families and generations here. She, this is when she's hearing the knocks from Simon. And, oh, the knocks. She had just heard what she thought was Simon and Saul saying, meet us. And then all of a sudden she hears Ruby's voice and she's saying, mama. Inside Clara, a long stalk keels and snaps. Always it's like this. The family that created her and the family that she created pulling her in opposite directions. Yes, I love that line. I did highlight that line as well. And then my last one, I'm kind of cheating because it's a double. I realized I had these two different sentences highlighted about Simon that both are about the ocean. And one is early in Simon's life. One is right at the end of his life. And I don't know if Chloe even realized she did this with these two ocean metaphors, but I like the way that they bookended things for him. This is when... His family keeps calling him in San Francisco, kind of begging him to come back or talk to them. And Claire is saying, like, you've got to talk to them sometime. They're your family. And Simon thinks, not now, not yet. If he speaks to them, their voices will reach into the warm, blissful ocean in which he's been floating and yank him, gasping, dripping wet onto dry land. Mm-hmm. What's the other one? And then when he is, this is when he's, dying and he's in the hospital and he's with Robert and he's just talking to Robert about leaving his mother and regrets about that. He puts a second finger out but loses his train of thought. Talking feels like trying to reach the surface of an ocean. More and more it's like he's drifting toward the bottom like he knows what's down there though he can't explain it to anyone on land. Simon. Yeah. Love that idea, right? That you just can't explain it to anyone on land. That like somehow it's so, you're so different. I think I have my three. We'll see if I do three-ish like you. <laughs> okay. What, uh, the first one, and I don't have the context as much since I've had these like in my Kindle notes, but you may know from, from knowing the book okay. more than me that you can give the context for it. This one's not so deep, but I think it was so true is... Clara's greatest trick is not the jaws of life, but the force of will it takes to ignore her audience, audience's pagers and stonewashed jeans. <laughs> I was like, man, how real is that? It's kind of like what we talked about with the magic, right? What is actually the magic there? Mm-hmm. My other favorites is, and I really don't remember the context of this one, so maybe you can place it for, for us. It's, I remembered the comics how it was possible to be more than you were, more than you started out being. I think that was Eddie in his big confession to Clara after her show that he said that he was like used to read the comics. And that's like why he found the magic in her Mm -hmm. show. Oh, man. That he had kind of, he had felt this magic earlier in life and then later she brought it back for him. Do I like Eddie more than I thought? No, no, uh, all your I next don't. quotes are about Eddie. <laughs> no, but just the fact that one. But, but here's the thing: is that it's not it's not actually Eddie because it's uh, Chloe Benjamin. So I don't have to say I like Eddie. <laughs> it is Eddie. I found yes. it. It's on page one twenty six. Yes, I know. I just had it too. I guess the beginning of that sentence was when I watched you making a card appear out of nowhere or working those steel rings. Right, but I loved that idea. How it's possible to be more than you were, more than you started out being. 
I think it's also can be a dangerous idea, right? Because you could be like, I can always be more. I can always be more. But it can also be a hopeful idea. Mm-hmm. Stuck. And Clara talks a lot about expanding people's perception, expanding their understanding of what can be real. And so I feel like that's very similar if you're expanding your possibilities of what you can be. My last quote is similar to that. I, I like this theme. And this was Raj talking to, to her about basically about her privilege. She said, people like me, on the other hand, we hang on by our teeth. And if we're really, really lucky, if we're fucking exceptional, we get somewhere. But you can you can always be airlifted out. Mm-hmm. That's when Raj is comparing his childhood to hers. And it's kind of like, why do you think you're so unique in your grief? And that was a real that was a really good moment. That whole conversation they had. Yeah. Yeah, it was I think it's it what it's like kind of the slap in the face to Clara at the moment, but also to any of those of us with privilege reading it, right? Who are like, oh yeah. This is it doesn't mean that Clara's grief or, you know, Clara's issues are any worse or are not are not as bad as Raj's or, you know, it's not a competition for the big the most amount of grief or the worst life or the hardest the hardest hardships, but just to to, to have some context. Yeah, have context. And it kind of brings up the question, does it make a difference if you, if some just because someone is suffering, quote, more than you, can that actually change your experience? Is that the thing that can snap you into reality? Or for some people, that's not going to be the thing that makes any difference for them. You only know what you know. So true. And that is like, we don't even have time to have that whole conversation <laughs> of you yeah. only know. What you know. We're not going to try to. <laughs> we can't unpack that one. <laughs> but we will be back for reading the rest of the book, hearing Daniel and Varia's sections and sharing more favorite sentences, takeaways. I'm, I'm going to uh, challenge myself to come up with a song again for each of them now that I've done a song for Simon and Clara. And I'm very excited to read the second half with you. Yes, me too. Me too. And, you know, I, I think I said in the beginning, my predictions are that they're both going to die on their on their dates. Also, we're going to have to read later Chloe Benjamin's first book, The Anatomy of Dreams, which is also incredible. OK, stay tuned. This is a podcast, but it's also like more than a podcast. Don't Talk to Me Unless It's About This is a place for people in love and obsessed with storytelling to share in our admiration of books, music, comedy, and other forms of story, and to fuel our own creativity. So we have a Patreon community that you can try out for free. It's a place to continue these conversations off air, to submit your own thoughts and topic ideas to be shared on the show, join a community to help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whether those are hobbies or professionally, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter, where we'll share little teasers of what's going on in Patreon, or you can go right ahead and join the Patreon right now. All the links are in the show notes. We'd love to hear what you think about the show, so please tell us by leaving a review, emailing us, or sending a message on Instagram. 